This is the Heritage Radio News, bringing you top food stories from down the street and around the world with your Heritage Radio News team, Erica Wides, Patrick Martins, Jack Kinsley on sports, and Mike Edison on weather. Welcome to Heritage Radio Network News. I'm Erica Wise, co-anchoring with Patrick Martins. Hi, Erica. Hi, Patrick. Today is May 26, 2016. We've also got Mike Edison in studio today, alive with the weather, and Jack Inslee on sports. Our top stories this week, Shanghai's food culture gets fancy. Venezuela's falls short. And some barbecue news for your Memorial Day holiday weekend. Jack, what have you got for us today from the arena? Well, a major league punch has led to some barbecue threats, and stadium prices are getting cheaper for food. Oh, my God. I'm scared. Mm. I don't even know what that means. Uh, and, Mike, it's nice that. today. It's hot. Oy vey. I'm spritzing like a chazer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can, we can see it from here. Wow. All right. And now for our top story of the week. Have you bought a steak in a supermarket or warehouse store lately? We'll take a closer look at the label, because new labeling on some steaks highlights a production process you may have never heard of. Mechanical tenderizing. This means the beef has been punctured with thin blades or needles to break down the muscle fibers and make it easier to chew. You may enjoy a more tender steak, but it also means the meat has a greater chance of being contaminated and making you sick. And it can also mean a lot more meat being cooked to well done this holiday weekend. This is because that label might read blade tenderized, followed by cook until steak reaches an internal temp of 145 degrees and allow to rest for three minutes. Other labels recommend cooking to 160 degrees without the three-minute rest. For context, 145 is well into the medium zone and not what most steak eaters are looking for, let alone 160 degrees. You may as well be eating chicken. The labels are a requirement from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which went into effect earlier this week. Why the warning and new cooking temperatures? If pathogens like E. coli or salmonella are on the surface of the steak, tenderizing can transfer those bacteria from the surface to the inside, which is more likely to be undercooked and allow the bacteria to survive. And without a label, you won't know if your meat's been beaten uh, or uh, tenderized. A spokesman for the USDA says it doesn't look any different. It's not filled with visible holes from the needle piercings. Mechanical tenderizing is not uncommon. 2.7 billion pounds, or about 11% of the beef for sale, has been mechanically tenderized, according to USDA. The new labels will affect an estimated 6.2 billion servings of steaks and roasts every year. And it's not unheard of for tenderized beef to be linked to food poisoning. The CDC has tracked six outbreaks of foodborne illness since 2000 that were linked to mechanically tenderized beef products prepared both in restaurants and in consumers' homes. In 2009, 21 people in 16 states were infected with the most common strain of dangerous E. coli bacteria called O157. Nine of them had to be hospitalized, and one victim developed hemolytic uremic syndrome, a potentially fatal kidney disease. USDA food safety officials connected the illnesses to blade-tenderized steaks from National Steak and Poultry, and the company recalled 248,000 pounds of beef products. So I'll be sticking with grass-fed from small family farmers for my holiday grill fest this year. Sounds like I will too, Erica. Yeah, seriously. What is the incidence of uh, people getting sick from grass-fed meat? And is grass-fed meat tenderized? 
Well, grass-fed meat's never tenderized. This is only industrial, commercialized, you know, commercial meat. But um, I don't know the actual incidence, but we do know that grass-fed meat has a much, much lower incidence of E. coli and contamination because of smaller producers and just smaller herds and much tighter control on the processing and the slaughter and all that. So it uh, really pays to uh, buy your meat from someone you know, or at least a small farmer. You don't want uh, any 0157 in your life, or as you would call it, Mike, OI-157. <laughs> In other news, the world's most populous nation will now have a Michelin guide all to its own. This week it was announced that Michelin would make its first foray into mainland China, with Michelin Shanghai 2017 slated to be published later this year. The Michelin guides are a series of annual guidebooks published by the French company Michelin for more than a century, which awards Michelin stars for excellence to a select few establishment. The acquisition or loss of a star can have dramatic effects on the success of a restaurant. Michael Ellis, international director of the guide, says, The richness and quality of Shanghai's culinary scene completely won us over. The city is an economic and cultural crossroads, and its gastronomy is the result of a strong culinary heritage, which makes the dining scene very exciting. We spoke with Cesare Casella, a restaurateur and cure master who has earned a Michelin star for his Tuscan trattoria, Vipore, who said, Michelin draws certain lines and creates standards to help make tourism experiences better. Although I wonder what standards they hold for China, not having come from that culture. Perhaps the correct standards will not be what you or they think. Having the Michelin Guide in China, though, will no doubt help promote tourism, both within and outside of China. It's interesting, Erica, isn't it, that cultural institutions like Michelin guidebooks or acting troops are often the first envoys to break down the barriers between nations before political and economic ties are formed. Yeah, well, you know, cultural stuff and food, that's, the, that's what ties us all together as humans, right? Mm-hmm. Food's the one thing everybody can agree on and everybody can talk about no matter what the culture is. But uh, Cesare's quote was really interesting because, you know, really coming at it from such a completely different perspective as a European it is difficult, although in Michelin's defense, uh, their Hong Kong and Macau edition did feature for the first time a street food section. Wow. So mm-hmm. it would be interesting to compare what they, how they rate uh, restaurants and food spots with how uh, local newspapers or right, local or bloggers. bloggers yeah, yes. sure, people are actually on the ground. I heard every restaurant in North Korea is a five-star Michelin restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. we know who the chef is right. at Kim, each one. Kim Jong-un is the publisher of Michelin in, uh, in North Korea. Wow. Well, that was, that's fascinating. Thanks, Patrick. Um, we're going to go to a break, and when we come back, our very exciting Fast Food Minute. We'll be right back. Today's program is brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. Welcome back to Heritage Radio Network News. I'm Erica Wise, along with Patrick Martins, and this is Heritage Radio Network News, broadcasting live from Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And now, for our favorite time of the week, it's our Fast Food Minute. And first, today, we're going to Rachel, our producer. Rachel, what have you got? Well, you know me. It's all uh, blood, guts, and uh, beer, so... (laughs) (laughs) And gore. Yeah. What fun is it being a vegetarian when your burger doesn't bleed on you? Well, now it does. Whole Foods this week unveiled a plant-based burger from a company called Beyond Meat that cooks, looks, and tastes like ground beef. It's so meat life, in fact, that the grocery chain decided to sell it in the refrigerated section right next to the real meat. 
And whether it was the hype or the description, it worked. Within the first hour of its debut in Boulder, Colorado location, the Schmeet was already sold out. <laughs> the blood in the burgers is beet juice, but another company, Impossible Foods, <clears throat> hopes to one day make an even more meat-like meatless burger, which includes a dose of, of heme, the molecule that produces iron and blood-like flavor in the animal products. Uh, to quote Ian Malcolm, they were so preoccupied with whether they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. <laughs> <laughs> At least you don't have to tenderize it. It's blades. Seriously. And Jack Inslee, what have you got yes, for us? Yes, well, we are close to the end of this ridiculous primary season, and I've reported a few times on the candidates and their various food forays. Now it's time to tally up some of the greens spent on grub over the course of this election cycle. As rounded up on the San Francisco gate, there are some staggering numbers to report, guys. Ted Cruz spent about $1,200 on grilled cheese. Chris Christie spent about $1,700 on Subway sandwiches, only from Subway. For breakfast. That's right. And none of these numbers, though, came close to the $17,000-plus that Hillary Clinton spent on pizza on the campaign trail this year. And we can only assume Donald Trump saved all of his money by eating all-exclusively Trump-sponsored food products. (laughs) And taco bowls. Yeah. Discontinued Trump steaks. Exactly. (laughs) I bet those have to be beaten. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've got good news for South Korean dipsomaniacs. Um, according to Reuters, South Koreans consume the most alcohol in all of Asia, making hangover cures there a big business. And now a chain of convenience stores in South Korea is selling grapefruit-flavored ice cream and promises to help cure the morning-after blues. The Gayendo Bar contains Japanese raisin tr- uh, free tr- fruit tree juice, which, according to one study, actually improves hangover in rats. How the rats indicate that their hangovers have gone away, one can only imagine. <laughs> but anyway, the bar's name translates to hang in there. And Reuters reported it expresses... This is a quote from one of the convenience stores that carry the, this uh, hangover cure ice cream fruit. It expresses the hardships of employees who have to suffer a working day after heavy drinking drinking, as well as to provide comfort to those who have come to work early after frequent nights of drinking. Um, I think official state recognition of people that come to work hungover is seriously the sign of advanced culture. Of course, my favorite hangover cure, drinking beer in the shower, is probably not to be, <laughs> about to be endorsed by anybody anytime soon. Nor are McDonald's french fries when they come gold. McDonald's says it's going to award a special box of gold fries to a lucky customer in Japan. Though outside of a single picture, the chain is offering no additional details about the number of carrots or what it's actually made out of. Sounds like the strategy used by Chocolatier and Willy Wonka, although I don't know if the chocolate made kids sick. Who knows what sprays lies on those gold fries? You know what? Eating the gold ones would probably be better for you than eating the real ones. Seriously, Get some minerals. Well, speaking of french fries... Since we're on that theme, it's been a little over a year since the terrible East Village gas explosion at 7th Street and 2nd Avenue in Manhattan, which killed several people and wiped out beloved businesses. The 18-year-old French fry shop Pomfrit closed down, and owner Suzanne Levinson and Omer Shorshi have been working for more than a year to reopen the beloved deep-fried institution. At last, the new location at 128 McDougall Street will begin serving fries this week. Yay! Along with the signature 30 special sauces. Good news for all the late-night drinkers hanging out below 14th Street and our own Mike Edison. Wow. That's exciting, actually. I'm going to South Korea to get that grapefruit ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that wraps it up for this week's Fast Food Minute, sponsored by Cane Vineyard and Winery. Of course, coming up after the break, Venezuela may be ripe for revolution and food may be to blame. We'll be right back. Hi there, I'm Greg from Kapow. Visit us at kapow.com to check out our unique collection of everyday reusable products designed to help you do more with less. 
C-U-P-P-O-W.com. Welcome back to the Heritage Radio Network News, recording from Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm Patrick Martins. And next up, we have Erica with the story about the economic state in Venezuela. Erica? Yeah, boy, Venezuela is seriously a mess. I mean, things are really falling apart there. The South American country, which has the largest oil reserves on the planet, is facing a major economic crisis with a 700% inflation rate, currently the highest in the world. And the situation, especially the food situation which is why we're talking about it, is only getting bleaker for the country's 30 million inhabitants, not to mention hugely unpopular President Nicolas Maduro. According to USA Today, due to exorbitantly high prices for staple ingredients, bakeries have started shutting down because they can no longer afford their flour. This is leading to a very scarce food situation and long bread lines. And when bread gets too expensive, well, revolution isn't far behind. Earlier this month, Ramon Muchacho, mayor of the Caracas district of Chacao, claimed via Twitter that residents of the capital are resorting to forms of urban hunting in order to subsist. He tweeted, people are hunting dogs and cats in the street and pigeons in the plazas to eat. While these claims aren't verified, massive grocery lines, looting and robberies for food have become widespread, according to numerous reports. Unemployed construction worker Roberto Sanchez told USA Today, we have no food. They're cutting power four hours a day, crime is soaring, and Maduro blames everyone but himself for the mess we find ourselves in. We can't go on like this forever. Something has to give. President Maduro is also threatening to lock up factory owners who have halted production because of their inability to buy raw materials. The threat came after Venezuela's largest food and beverage distributor, Empresas Polar, shut down its last operational beer factory. In fact, Maduro went as far as accusing such producers of sabotaging the country. Poor monetary policy, plunging oil prices, and corrupt government sounds like the perfect storm for an angry, hungry population ready to rise up and revolt. Wow, it sounds like there needs to be another impeachment south of the equator. They're trying to impeach the president of Brazil. It looks like Nicolas Maduro needs to be on his way out, too. Yeah. Well, weather can't be helping this situation either. Uh, Mike. Have you been out there today, Patrick? It's hot. It's miserable. It's nothing short of hot, hot, hot. Words I have heard in the weather community, such as it is, to describe what this summer is going to be, <laughs> like range from miserable to broiling. Temperatures in the northern and eastern United States will be warmer than average overall, according to an updated outlook released this week by the weather company which is the company recently purchased by IBM that somehow thinks it can do a better job than I can collating weather data. <laughs> but they weren't alone. On Monday, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration published its summer outlook warning that America's, uh, most of the continental United States is facing elevated chances of well above summer temperatures, well above average summer temperatures, largely due to elevated El Nino conditions. Now, if you've been paying attention to the Heritage Radio News, you know this sort of extreme weather is largely rooted in one thing. Global warming caused by celebrities who fly on private jets, and especially, of course, Leonardo DiCaprio, who loves to talk the talk, but when it comes to walking the walk, he leaves a carbon footprint approximately the size of Davos, Switzerland. <laughs> According to the New York Post, DiCaprio is the poster boy for climate change hypocrisy, and he has a Disney-like parade of Hollywood hotshots following him on their own private jets, including President Obama and that gas guzzler Air Force One. And no amount of Prius-like hybrids or electric cars are going to balance the equation, not as long as limousine liberals refuse to fly coach. But why believe the New York Post, which makes its bones peddling the worst sort of celebrity rubbish and right-wing claptrap? Let me ask you this, Patrick. Have you ever flown on a private jet? Let me tell you, it doesn't suck. 
And do you really think George Clooney needs to be having a drink in the JetBlue terminal at JFK while he waits for his plane to begin boring? And therein lies what should be the national conversation about climate change. Which is more important? DiCaprio's yacht or the polar ice caps? And by the way, wasn't it some sort of floating ice thing that was responsible for sinking the Titanic? I think therein lies the answer, but there are questions, difficult questions indeed, and perhaps... Perhaps if I were a real scientist and not just a propped-up on-air weather personality, I would have some answers for you. But for now, all I'm going to say is that when your grandmother is dying from heat stroke this summer, blame Clooney and DiCaprio and their posse of selfish Hollywood celebrities, because me, I'm going to be taking the L train. Although I don't know how long you're going to be taking for the L train for, because wasn't it a hurricane that it wiped out the tunnel and is going to shut the L train down for the next few months or even years? Well, then Patrick just uh, gas up the Heritage News jet. If it's good enough for DiCaprio, it's good enough for me. It's worth flying you out here for the weather, Mike. Do you think that if Obama had to fly on Southwest, he would automatically be in Group A when you line up? Do you think they'd tag him for 50 bucks for would an extra you, bag? Would yes. he get an upgrade, or would he have oh, to be God. back in Group C with me, which is where I always am on Southwest? No matter when I check in, I'm always in Group C. I think Southwest only has Group C. I think so. <laughs> I would like to see those guys fly coach for once. Bernie Sanders does, you know. Oh, well, thanks, Mike, for yet again another uplifting and cheerful weather report as we all swelter here in New York. We are going to take a break. We'll be right back. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. That is the sound of... Cue up the sports <laughs> report. Is Curry out? Up. He's here. Is Curry out? Curry's not out. He's playing. He's not playing well, though. Do you think they're going to be eliminated today? You know, I did a story a few weeks back on uh, them cutting sweets and candy for the mm-hmm. Warriors. I think that might be to blame. I see. I very the guy needs his candy. You know? Is Draymond Green a liability, Jack? Sure seems like it, huh? Mm-hmm. Uh, real hothead. Uh, speaking of hotheads, uh, the punch that shook baseball has some seriously delicious consequences. Ruffnid Odor, the second baseman for the Texas Rangers, he straight up punched Jose Batista of the Toronto Blue Jays in the face a few weeks ago, and it caused an uproar in the sports world. Really ridiculous if you haven't seen it. But Travis Helm, the co-owner of a barbecue restaurant in Fort Worth, Texas, and fan of the Rangers, decided to celebrate the melee by offering Odor free food for life if he visits Heim Barbecue. The business also sold shirts online that read, Ruffnid Eats Free. However, not everyone is behaving sportsmanlike now. Travis Haim is literally receiving death threats from Toronto Blue Jays fans. Uh, it's really a fan-eat-fan world out there, Patrick. <laughs> and uh, in other sports news, the NFL's Atlanta Falcons are setting a new precedent with stadium food. And no, this doesn't mean gourmet $20 lobster rolls or $30 sausage sandwiches. They plan on winning fans over by saving their wallets. That's right. The Falcons want to set a new standard for cheap stadium food. Mercedes-Benz Stadium, which will house the Falcons when it opens next year, will sell pizza and nachos for three bucks, bottled water for two, and beer for five, which, according to Bloomberg and anybody who's ever been to a sporting event, is dollars cheaper than the national average, which is actually seven forty-two for a beer sold at other NFL stadiums. Hmm. The team is reportedly signing a new deal with supplier Levy Restaurants to cut costs. And Arthur Blank, Falcons and Atlanta United owner, said, We focused from the beginning on building a unique fan experience at Mercedes-Benz Stadium with the goal of helping those who visit to leave the stadium with great memories shared with family and friends, not aggravation and frustration about their experience. Steve Cannon, CEO of Blank's AMB Group, which owns the Falcons, told Bloomberg, 
we're going to get them in earlier. They're going to linger a little bit longer. They're going to be a little freer and not think that they're getting ripped off. So while other stadiums race to the top of the food chain, the Falcons will happily live at the bottom. And yeah, the food will likely lack nutrients, but when you spend an arm and a leg on ticket prices, you might not mind cutting some culinary corners to collect coin on the back end. Cheap eats will prevail. <laughs> does, do you, does diarrhea count as frustration oh, about their experience? Patrick, this is a serious wow. news show. Come on, a little decorum, a little protocol here. Jack, do you think that the trend toward higher-end stadium food is backfiring? Do you think that people are not interested in eating lobster rolls? You know, I I do feel a little better when I have something that I can at least trick myself into thinking is healthier. Yeah. Like a Luke's lobster roll. I'll take the extra cost. Mm-hmm. I mean, Patrick's right. The stomach aches from $3 hot dogs might not be worth Those it. Those days right. are over. But, you know, yeah. but seats are so expensive now in, right. in sports. It's a real commitment. It's a huge amount of money. I, I went to a Mets game last year. I spent a fortune. Yeah. And so I don't even really like going to sports events. So, you know, at least there's good food there. But um, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Jack. As always, scintillating sports coverage (laughs) we will be right back after this today's program is brought to you by whole foods market for more information visit wholefoodsmarket.com welcome back to heritage radio news network from roberta's pizza in bushwick brooklyn and our op-ed this week's this week comes from our very own heritage radio host joanne fleming What have you got, Joanne? So I'm talking about the no-tipping policy. In uh, December 2015, Governor Cuomo uh, passed a minimum wage increase for tipped workers, and their hourly wage went from $5 an hour to $7.50 an hour, and that's a 50% increase. At the same time, the kitchen workers got a $0.25 per hour increase. So the new law caused some restaurateurs to institute the no-tipping policy, an idea that has been brewing for some time. They needed to address the disparity of the wages between the front of the house employees and the back of the house employees. The back of the house wages have been stagnant for 10 years, averaging $10 to $12 an hour. Some of these workers are highly skilled and trained. The no-tipping policy uh, requires the restaurant owners to raise the prices to the customers and splitting the increase between the front of the house and the back of the house employees. The plan includes bringing service wages to what they used to make when they were collecting tips and raising the back of the house employees' salaries by about two bucks an hour and the manager's salaries to around 50000 a year. A number of the restaurateurs implemented the policy in New York City and throughout the United States, and the no-tipping policy has been popular in Europe for many years. Six months into the no-tipping policy, there are mixed reviews. Danny Meyer's modern restaurant is thriving. Sales are up. Employees are being better paid. Customers are okay with the price increases. Employee turnover is lower. And the owners are making more profits than before with the no-tipping policy. Is this an anomaly? Well, it may be too soon to say, because on the other side, Joe's Crab Shack instituted the no-tipping policy in 18 of their 130 restaurants throughout the country, and six months later are reversing the policy in 14 of those restaurants. Why? Well, a 10% drop in the customers. And why are customers unhappy? Is it the increase in prices? Is it the perceived lack of good service? Is it the change of policy is hard for some people? How come it worked in four restaurants and not the other 14? My thoughts, I was in Iceland and Italy last year, and the no-tipping policy is the standard. I liked it. When I order a chicken dinner for 20 bucks, it costs me 20 bucks. In New York City, the $20 chicken dinner costs $24 with tip. And I don't think service suffered due to the no-tipping policy. And here is something that only a tax accountant would think about. 
The tax department stands to gain with this no-tipping policy. You see, the restaurants have to charge sales tax on the whole bill. Hence, higher prices equal more sales tax. In the tipping model, you don't get charged sales tax on the tip. You save the 9% tax. Also, the servers no longer have the unreported cash tip. How do customers feel that servers earn a good salary and don't always pay tax on all of it? But you and I do. We have to pay tax on all of our wages. As a former waitress, back in the day, that's what servers were called. I made good money on good nights. I didn't make good money on nights when the weather was bad, certain holidays, major events were going on. But I was okay with that because overall my earnings averaged out to be decent. If I was paid a fair salary without tips, I'm sure I would have provided the same level of service because I always wanted to do a good job. Tipping doesn't mean better service. It's an outdated idea that leads to income disparity. The industry needs to continue working on this issue to bring it to a fair, workable model. Wow. Fascinating. That op-ed deserves a tip. <laughs> Very good. Thanks, Joanne. Never thought about the tax implications. Though. Yeah. That, yeah. Why wouldn't they be taxing the pre-tip amount? No, 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 no. They are just lopping on higher prices. Yeah. Okay. Right. So when your $20 chicken dinner is now charged $24, you yeah. pay sales tax on $24. Yeah, that just seems really Previously, corrupt. you would pay $20 sales tax on 20 right. and give the, and the, the waiter tip, yeah. $4, $4 right. and save the tip. The tax on huh. that $4. And then the waiter now has to pay the tax on the money he makes versus not being able to report it. Supposed right. to pay the money. Oh, so. now he will. Now. Now right. he will. On right. cash tips. Yeah. Right. When I was a sous chef in a three-star Manhattan restaurant, I used to come in on my day off and work coat check because I'd make more money getting tipped in the mm. coat check room than I would make working as a sous chef. There's lots of disparity, particularly, yeah. you know, if you order a bottle of wine and, mm-hmm. you get t- and you get tipped on a bottle of wine. The guy opened up a bottle, a $40 bottle of wine or a $400 bottle of wine. The tip is going to be pretty impressive, and the difference is, you know, yeah. big. Does yeah. one still tip the coat check? I think so, yeah. I mean, that was 20 years ago, but... Joanne, what's the appropriate tip for a coat check per coat? <laughs> Listen. $2 per coat. $2 Listen, coat. it's a very seasonal business. It is. That's why I would only do it in the winter. Yeah, and then, of course, in the winter, around Christmas, all the Europeans would come who would pretend they didn't know about tipping, mm. and they would hand me their giant shopping bags and fur coats and not give me a tip. I actually enjoy going into restaurants that still have a tip policy, and I leave them the check, and I'm saying, congratulations on going no tip, and then I run out. <laughs> but then I run back and say, just All right. Out. Well, that just about wraps it up for this week. <laughs> We're out of time. Uh, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network News. If you have any show ideas or comments or suggestions or you just want to say hi, email us at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Thanks for listening. From me, Erica Wise, Patrick Martins, Jack Ginsley, Mike Edison, and our special guest today, Joanne Fleming, and of course, Rachel, the producer, and Dave Tat in the control room. We'll see you all next week. Have a good weekend. Mm-hmm.